Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, healthcare, and workforce explore new education-to-work approaches and innovations. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. My guest today has the coolest job title of any guest on the podcast so far, Chief Futurist. And that's not the only title Dr. Sunju Go has at Skills Future SG, part of the nation of Singapore's Ministry of Education. She is also the chief skills officer and chief research officer, leading a team of data experts and futurists to develop job skills insights for individuals, businesses, education and training partners, and policymakers in Singapore. Dr. Gao has a global reputation as a leader in driving workforce innovation and leads international research in the future work, learning, and skills. She previously held a number of positions in Singapore's government and describes herself as a social economic scientist who is passionate about the skills ecosystem and lifelong learning. I've really been looking forward to having her on the show because her work is so interesting and important. Thanks very much for joining us today, Sunju. Thanks for the opportunity and, and the invitation to share our work. Well, can you start by sharing with us why the country of Singapore established your agency and why the choice of the name Skills Future? In fact, if you look back to Singapore's history, we have been investing relentlessly in our people since the nation building 55 years ago. So this is not the first time that we have dedicated resources to build our people because Singapore is a, is a small city state and what we value most is our people. And we don't have a lot of resources like uh, natural resources. So people are our most precious resource. So we have been investing a lot in terms of educations, from general education, primary school, secondary school, to tertiary education. And lifelong learning has always been the Singapore government's commitment. Skill Future actually is a, is a movement, is a national movement, and subsequently become we set up an agency to drive this movement. The intention of the movement is to promote lifelong learning. The end outcome is very clear. It's about realizing every individual's potential in Singapore, a most inspiring career potential we have in every citizen. This is a very in, important endeavor because as the nation moves forward, as as economic changes with the advancement of technology, things will change very rapidly from the perspective of technology, from the perspective of the economy and also the businesses. And how can we help people to acquire the kind of skills needed so that they can stay ahead of the curve is very important. So the Skill Future in, in 2015 was started as a movement. In 2016, we set up the agency. So the agency's mandate is to identify the kind of skills needed for the, the economy and then we share the information insights with the people, with the employers, and with the education and training institutions. And we also provide the funding cost fee subsidies to defray the kind of out-of-pocket expenses individual and employer need to fork out to reskill their workforce. At the same time, we curate the best quality education and training providers into the ecosystem. So it kind of create a kind of skill ecosystem dynamism to allow the kind of we can anticipate the skill needed. We can reskill ahead of time so that people have an adequate time to acquire the skills, apply the skill at workplaces. And at the same time, we can engage employers and bring together the key stakeholders into the ecosystem. Employer individuals, uh, unions, uh, education training providers to make sure that this, this whole ecosystem is in time 
to make sure that we have the right skill set needed for the economy. Well, I'm sure our audience can probably already tell how smart Singapore is in terms of designing its public policies. And your organization is an exemplar already. Some say that it is because that you are a smaller nation and therefore it's more manageable to do so. But I believe these smart policies arise because you first scan the world for solutions and ideas, then come up with what is best for your situation in your context. So what is the situation for adult reskilling in Singapore? What problem is the country trying to solve and what do you recommend others replicate? I know that that's a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, probably I can share what we currently are doing. All this what we're trying to do is when we started Skill Future Movement in 2016, we gave every Singaporean 25 year old and above $500 Skill Future credits. In fact, in October, last year, October, we just did another top up, another $500 top up. And for Singaporean 40 and above, they have additional $500 top up. So in all in all, we have about $1,500 skill future credit for every individual. I think that is a, a, a very important uh, shift that we do because we, we think that we have to empower every one of us to be able to make a decision about how do you want to invest in yourself, in the directions you want and in the kind of career you want. Besides working alongside with employers, of course, employers are very key to us. So we're engaging employees, another key strategy, it's a second strategy. We, we engage employers to say that, how is your business moving forward? Because you look at COVID, even pre-COVID, businesses are changing. The kind of new emerging kind of new economy is moving. And we're asking at, at the same time, employer, what, which direction are you moving? What kind of talent and skills do you need? So that the engagement of employer in the conversations to identify the kind of talent and skills need is a second strategy we have. Employer is not just a location or a, a partner to use skills. They are a critical partner in developing skills because workplace are the best place to develop skills. So we're trying to link the employer and the education and training institutions to close the nexus of who is the supplier and who is the developer of the skills. It has to be a very close partnership. So that's our key, second key strategy of engaging employers in the very tightly knitted manner that we understand where the business is moving forward. And then I think the, the third area that we really focus on is about what kind of relationship we want to strike with our education and training institutions because they are the ones that will to create the best, I'll, I'll call it the most contemporary pedagogy to create a kind of, develop the kind of learning experiences that is necessary to help the learners acquire the learning and yet you can apply the learning at the workplace. And so I call it this trinity of partners is very important. And we try to see how best can we facilitate the collaborations between the three of them by providing the data, providing the insights they needed to make the key decisions, by bringing them together to have the dialogue uh, to create programs together that needed. Uh, so I think this, this is very important from a policymakers. It's not just about giving and funding support, but it's about how do we facilitate the kind of discussions coming together to make things happen. Ooh, I definitely want to probe uh, more on the employers and the educators, but first, you know, on the point of the credits, the 1500 in credit, 
It sounds to me like a portable learning account yes, where the government is investing. Yes. I see. And and you know, one of the things that we're wrestling with is that adults don't necessarily have a norm of accessing more education. So what is your feel for how much adults are tapping into these credits in order to skill up? But as of 2019, we have really sizable um, a number of uh, Singaporeans utilizing the credits. I would say that since the Skill Future movement started, we have seen a tremendous increase in terms of the workforce training participation. Parallel to Skill Future movement, our workforce training participation hovering about 32%, but as of 2019, it has shot up to 48%. It is not the best record yet. We would love to see this high 60, high 70, but I think that quick jump over the last three years is a good sign that people are taking their own initiative because now they see that, oh, I have this account set up for me and this money, I can utilize it to defray our pockets on top of what the government already funding each cost fee. Take, for example, a, a training program can cost you $1,000 and we would already have funded a 40-year-old Singaporean 90% cost fee funding. So the $900 has been funded. So the 10% that they are supposed to pay, they can use the credit. What it means is it's almost a free training. The, the decision made is then what kind of courses I needed, what kind of skills I want to go for so that I can support my next bar or my career. So I think that that is something that on the monetary side that we're trying to use a credit to support. And more importantly, now we are also moving into then what kind of labor market information, labor market data that will help individuals make the informed decisions. Uh, we also work very, very closely with our labor movement, our union. Uh, in Singapore, we call them a National Trade Union Congress, NTUC. They mobilize their uh, union members on the ground and look into what kind of uh, skills is needed. They set up a company training committee to review what kind of training is needed within the organizations, within the firms, so that they can mobilize their, uh, their union members to go for the kind of training. So I think it is not just about money given to credits given to people. It's also about information and tools. It's also about working through uh, trade unions and chambers of commerce because the Chamber of Commerce will be able to mobilize the employers. So the skill ecosystem has to be a very dynamic one where all of us are participating in the same conversations uh, from the business perspective to the talent and skills perspective. And every of our key stakeholders will play their parts to make sure that this will work together. One of my favorite stories that you've shared with me is your work with leading edge innovators, basically companies that are ahead of the curve when it comes to automation, to observe how they impact the workforce and the skill sets. So you had shared with me a story about an airport terminal that became fully automated. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of detail and what were the workforce implications of watching and observing that terminal in action? Yes, yes. I think I was, uh, when I met you, uh, was in, in Cupertino or Polato two years back, we, I was sharing a video about our Changi Airport uh, Terminal 4. It is a fully automated airport. You can self-check in, you can self-check in your bag, you can clear custom immigrations. Everything just is fully automated. And this is a something that our Changi Airport Group and together our Civil Aviation Authority of Singapore has put in place. It is a phase one of... Um, our whole nation of digitized Singapore. So that is a seamless travel experience for our traveler, whether they're inbound or outbound. And, and it's very smooth because you can just tap your passport. 
they scan a, a facial recognitions and you can clear the immigrations without having somebody to stamp your passport. Um, it is this is just a beginning. I thought what we have learned together through the whole process is there is a lot of rethinking of operating models. It's not just a deployment of technology, so simple is the end point is how can we provide a seamless travel experience? Um, a lot of the places will, will treat the airport as just a transport hub. But in Singapore, the airport itself is the destination. It's an extended shopping mall. It is an extended experience that you, where you can go there and sit down, relax, chill, do the last minute shopping, have a drink before you depart. So the whole design is a very different intention and purpose. And of course then, because of the operational model changes, it will impact the kind of workforce within there. Uh, there will be a reduction of counter service staff, but they will require more experienced and empathetic customer service officer who will roam around the whole airport. They will not be serving just one single customer have to queue up. Uh, so the, the, the kind of training required for the customer service officer will be very different. Uh, the kind of back-end, those who receive the data will be very different. Who will be observing the dashboard, looking at the whole from the cleanliness to the a smart airport will be very different. The maintenance team will be very different. If you come to Changi Airport today, you will see the robot cleaner cleaning the whole airports, moving around on its own. And you will see that even the dustbin itself is a compacted smart dustbin because it will trigger someone that this dustbin is almost full required cleaning, required emptying. It, we don't have to waste manpower to, to move around unnecessarily, but it's deployed to the right place when the signal comes in. So all these um, are the kind of uh, things that we started to implement in Singapore. Airport is one of them, uh, but there are many other things. Uh, we also follow, for example, recently we, we have a conversations with a security services company. Security services company are in high demand recently because of the COVID, uh, because they need to deploy people to the commercial building to do uh, temperature scanning, so there was a lot of counter set up uh, to manage access control because of COVID situation or pandemic situations. And when we spoke to the very progressive security company, they are already thinking ahead of how can they provide these services better in the event that this pandemic is going to stretch for a longer period, or let's say next time there is a disease X that's come along, how can they better deploy technology to serve their customer better on location? Can they do installations of technology that will replace the human needed to stand in front, set up a counter to do so? Uh, they're thinking about how can they set up a kind of smart CCTV that can register uh, facial recognitions, that can uh, register the kind of body temperatures very quickly, and that you can allow the client to understand the kind of traffic flow into a building very quickly. So, so I think these are the things that we constantly have to keep track of what are the very innovative companies are doing and what kind of training is needed. And this kind of information will be very helpful for education and training institutions to say that if the employers are thinking about this at this moment in time, when will it become mainstream? What's the lead time I have to train up my future workforce? We think that we have to do this kind of bridging of gaps and bringing the whole skill ecosystem together. And, and sometimes we have to start some uh, proof of concept POC 
to bring partners together and say, hey, why don't we start something together? It's getting tougher and tougher for adults to keep up with this rate of change. And are you playing with any of the state-of-the-art learning technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality? Last year in March, we have completed a future of adult learning research agenda. We galvanize our local universities to come together to deliberate and say that if we want to enhance our adult learning, what are the things we already know? What are the things we need to know? What are the things we do not know that we need to invest in more research? And it was a very comprehensive study that we have um, developed a set of research agenda that is cross-disciplinary from neuroscience, because we, know, we want to know how can we enhance adults' learning, cognitive ability, how can we enhance memory, to how can we think about the kind of spatial environment that is most uh, effective or most conducive for learning in different kind of work contexts, uh, to even community-based learning, what kind of community-based learning is best, and what kind of technology should we explore further. So I think there's no boundary. I think we should just continue to push for this. And we are very happy that the university come together and propose a set of uh, research agenda that we should continue to invest uh, in Singapore so that we can always do better for our doubt. Well, you are so generous in all this research and what you're learning and being willing to share with others. You serve on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the new agenda for education and skills. What are you hoping to contribute to that work? And have there been any learnings or ahas for you that you've gleaned to bring back? Yeah, I'm actually very honored to be invited to the Global Future Council for Education and Skills. The World Economic Forum is a very interesting and very encouraging organization that they're trying to bring together policymakers, academia, employers, NGO, to think about how can we enhance education, especially post-COVID? I think COVID has kind of spotlight one other future requirement. This particular council primarily looking at how can we push out a set of action plans, engage employer, engage education institutions, and engage policymakers to take actions, necessary actions in pedagogy, in, in pedagogical design and delivery, in terms of anticipating skills and in terms of um, measuring outcomes. So I think these are the kind of three priority areas that the council currently are looking at it. And, and we're very happy that all of us across the world are facing similar challenges. And in fact, whatever come out from the council will be very useful. And we are sharing experiences across various countries across various universities and employers are all contributing to the conversations. And what I am most inspired by the council's work is it is not just a plan. It is about an action that once the plan is ready, how do we mobilize globally employers, education training institutions and policymakers coming together to take actions to make educations and skills more relevant to the future economy. So I need to get in one more question here before we begin to close. You talked about COVID and its impact on the economy and how it sort of foreshadows how the future would play out. Well, one of the things is, that's becoming obvious with all the telework is that you begin to shrink uh, office facilities. And once you shrink office facilities, 
work can get also more fragmented and become more gigged because employers also want the flexibility and not hard code their workforce. So to us, we're seeing the value of portable benefits, which is a practice as a structural practice that Singapore has had around for a while. I was wondering if you could just describe for us what the experience is for the worker when benefits are actually portable and how do employers contribute to the portability? I think we can look at benefits in a few ways. Uh, One of them, of course, is the kind of saving for medical, saving for retirement. I I talk about this too first. In Singapore, we have a central provision fund uh, where employer and employee will both contribute on a monthly basis. Let's say a a young adult uh, coming into the workforce, on a monthly basis, the employer will need to contribute 20% of the salary into this provident fund, an individual will contribute 16%. This provident fund will have different accounts. One account is medical account, and one is an ordinary account, and one is a special account. And part of the ordinary account, you can use it to fund your housing. You can buy a house and take part of this to fund your housing on a monthly basis. Uh, the, the medical account, you can use it to buy an insurance uh, because over there, there is a universal coverage for all of us. We can use buy an insurance. They will cover uh, basic medical needs. And this is definitely portable because regardless of where you go, basically this is an institution that you have to adhere to and pay accordingly. Of course, the government will continue to encourage people to buy in additional to top it up. There are also insurance that government think that we should, every single one of us should buy in terms of dependence insurance or um, OH insurance that you want to buy to top up whatever requirement. And that is typically on an individual basis. So regardless of wherever you moved, then can move with you. So if I'm working a gig or a project as a contractor for employer, that employer pays some fraction? In Singapore, the government will encourage this own account worker to contribute to their own CPF. Because this CPF is tax deductible. So that if you keep putting in um, your the CPF, you can actually has reduce your tax, payable tax oh, okay. income. So if if I'm doing small gigs, small projects as a contractor, I can contribute my 16%. Yes. That's right. Is the employer at that moment also contributing the 20%? No, because if it's not an employee-employee relationship, but it's a contract for service, then this CPF will not apply. Okay, that's very helpful clarification. But it's it's so inspiring to know that Singapore has put in place a portable benefits structure that works and is already situated well into the future. Thank you very much, Dr. Ga, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm Vantone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce here in America. Music